God always gives very specific instructions about how to do things, and today's topic will be no exception. We're going to learn about how God's instructions for counting people. And Steve, we have a census today that happens in our country every 10 years, but God gave instructions to the ancient Israelites about taking a census. And so we're going to learn a few things about why that is and why it would occur at this point in the Word of God. And as we've seen through these other verses, there's a little bit of a twist on it. It's not just a straightforward counting the people, but there's some conditions that are going to go with it. And we've been learning, for those of you, welcome to our guest, but for those of you that have been with us, we've been learning about the tabernacle, and God has given a long series of very particular instructions about exactly how things ought to be within the tabernacle. And then suddenly we come to these verses here in Exodus chapter 30, about taking a census. And at first glance, it would seem, why is that here? Why would it not be someplace else? What does that have to do with worshiping? Well, I think there's two purposes. One, just on a practical sense, there's some money that would be needed to run the tabernacle. That's part of it. But Steve, let's go ahead and just read these verses, if we could. Could you read in Exodus chapter 30, start at verse 11, and go through 16, and we'll learn about this census. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 garaz, half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. You shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So with that, there's several things in here, Steve, that we can learn. One is, from just a practical standpoint, the, there would need some funds to run the run the tabernacle, all the various things that would have to happen. But I submit there's two or three layers here of very, very important other concepts. And this is not placed here in the Word of God by accident, as is everything in the Word of God. It's here for a reason. One of the first things I noticed just reading that is how many times he repeats things. He talks about numbering them, and it's over and over again, numbering them. That's one of the phrases that he uses. And he also says in here, what's interesting is that everyone has to pay the same fee. It was a half shekel, I believe. And it doesn't matter whether they were rich or whether they were poor or whether they were on the top end of the social ladder and very influential people or whether they were the least important people in town. Everybody had to pay the same amount. I think that speaks to us, uh, as is all these things in the tabernacle, it speaks to us in a spiritual sense. One is that everyone is equal before God. We read this and think of it as a, a uh, like a temple tax. 
a, uh, a tabernacle fee, but everyone is equal. Everyone is equal before God. I mean, wouldn't you say, Steve, that's one of the messages that's coming here? We can't approach God and say, look at what I accomplished, or look at how much money I have, or I don't count because I'm so poor. Everybody is equal before God. We saw that also whenever we were going through some of the rules related to how to treat people and murder or situations that were like that, that everybody was to be treated equal. There wasn't any specialties that were supposed to be shown regardless of what type of class that they were. So yeah, it is a consistent theme. And remember, there's a couple of times this gets mentioned over in the Gospels where Jesus didn't have the money to pay the temple tax. Or there was a woman who came in and gave her last two mites. This tax gets mentioned. So there's, again, multiple layers here that can be mentioned. First of all, it's everyone. And it's also called, if we look here in verse 12, what's very interesting here is it doesn't use the word tax. What's the word that it uses for this? Oh, it says a ransom. A ransom. A ransom is something you have to pay for yourself. Or that's what it says here, a ransom for himself. And literally, the term there is his soul in the original Hebrew. It says, each one of them shall give a ransom for his soul. We've said all along that the tabernacle is this picture of our separation from God. It's a picture of how sinful we are and how holy God is and how difficult it is to approach a holy God when you're a sinful person. Now we have this reinforced when each person has to come and give a ransom for a soul and to give it to God. And it even uses the word atonement down in one of the, the later words. So the word atonement talks about how do we cover for our sins. This is, yes, on a practical level, to make a little bit of money to help run the tabernacle, but it's also a picture of our separation from God. Everyone has to give a ransom to God for his soul because we are sinners. Now, the pro what's the problem with that, Steve, with giving a ransom for my soul? It's something that we may, might be able to <laughs> pay sometimes and something that we won't, might not be able to pay other times, but it's also something that we have to pay every year. And it's something just like the offerings that had to be given over and over again. It never stopped. This was something that was also have to be given at least periodically every time that there was a census taken. The, the word ransom is used many times in the Bible that talk about salvation. Talks about salvation. Romans chapter 7, I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin, Romans 7, verse 14. And then Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2, 6. Quote, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Matthew 20, verse 28. This idea that we are all sold, we have this obligation, we have this debt that has to get paid. And each one of us is going to have to pay it. None of us can go before God and say, I'm privileged or I'm exempt. Everybody has to pay it. And guess what? We can't because we're all sinners. We come to the foot of the cross penniless and powerless and broke. We don't even have the ransom to pay to the temple. 
The good news is what? Somebody's paid it for us. Somebody paid it for us. That's the lesson here, is that all of us have to pay this ransom for our soul. That's what it literally says. I just find this really fascinating, that buried here in all of these rules about the sanctuary is this wonderful message about Jesus Christ. He gave a couple of the text quotes that were there talking about that Jesus gave a ransom for us all. That's where it's lost. If we don't understand this portion that we just explained, then that meaning, on a practical note, it's something that can be understood. But here's where that little nugget of gold that are in these verses here in Exodus makes it so much more clear whenever it's used in the New Testament. It also shows that the New Testament writers referred back to the Old Testament often, quite often. They were referring back because in the very beginning, it was two Jewish people where they would understand and then also explain to Gentiles later for their benefit of understanding. But it makes it so much clearer when we understand some of the background that's with this. How many people have a sin debt before God? Everybody does. Everybody has a sin debt. Everybody has a sin debt. The other thing we can pick up from this is that uh, at, at the end of verse 12, it says that the consequences for not getting the census right was, quote, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. Many years later, there was a story of this. This gets picked up. King David took it upon himself to do a census, and it ended up sending a plague upon the land. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 24. This whole idea of not doing these things right, again, God is very particular very precise about how everything should be done. And David didn't do the census right, and it ended up causing a plague. He should have known that all of these details way back here in Exodus really matter. Do all these details back here in Exodus really matter? Can, can we take liberties with God's provisions just like then and, and get away with it? No, what it brings to mind, to my mind is that all of these rules and regulations and the way to worship him is what God wants. And it's there to show how he is to be worshiped. And we see, just through the example that you gave, that this plague did come whenever David took it upon himself to go do the census on his own. And Jesus came and paid that price. He kept all these Mosaic laws so that he could be a satisfactory sacrifice. We don't have to worry about these laws and rules. We need to know about them to understand, but we don't have to do it because Jesus did it. And Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The way to have eternal life is through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's what we're under right now. And there is no other way to come right. to God is right. through Jesus Christ. So just as God was particular back then with these rules and regulations and that some of them had consequences, and we read stories where when they weren't followed, the consequences fell on the people, the same is true today. We're free from having to go through all of these laws that are here, but there is only one way for salvation and that's through Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus made that, made that quite clear. 
one last thing about this census. So if you look at, at verse 14, what were the age of the people who had to pay it? 20 years old and over. 20 years old and over. We just said the census is sort of a picture of our, our spiritual accountability before God. So 20 years old and over. That same age is picked up again later here in the Old Testament when the children of Israel that were being punished for doubting God had to wander the wilderness for 40 years, and they all died except for the ones that were 20 years You're, old and over, right. or an under. Yonder, yeah. So this age of 20, this is twice now in, in, in the Old Testament here where it appears to be God's marking for the age of accountability before God. I don't know how far we want to get dogmatic about this concept of age of accountability, but we think of today, how old does a child have to be before they stop being innocent and start being responsible before God? And we've seen at least two times now here in the scriptures where God says 20 years old. So again, don't know how dogmatic I want to get about that with, with salvation, but nevertheless, it's possible that the age is much older than most of us think. Nevertheless, we should start teaching our children from before they're born. At least by the time you take them home, we should start taking our, ch our children through the Word of God. So we now have in the Word of God a bronze laver or basin. So what, give us an overview, Steve. What in the world is this thing and where does it fit and what's it for? Well, the laver or basin, it holds water and it's there for washing. It's there for cleansing that the priests need to cleanse themselves, that the priests need to wash themselves as part of the, uh, the rituals of worshiping. This is the last of the pieces of furniture that Exodus gives us that goes inside the tabernacle. And if you remember, again, there's a tent that has the holy place and the holy of holies. And outside of that tent was the, the altar made out of bronze. And that's where the animals would get sacrificed. And there was a fire there. They were constantly cutting up these animals and putting them on the altar. Well, they're in between the burnt altar and the tent of the tabernacle. There's this bronze basin or the old King James word is laver. And it was just a round bronze or brass, possibly basin that held water in it where you could rinse your hands, wash your hands and your feet. So the concept's pretty clear. The priest would be doing things outside. They would have been wandering around in the courtyard. Their sandals would have been dirty. Their hands would have been dirty from handling the animals. And again, the concept of you have to be clean before you go into where God was. They would have to, as part of the ritual, they would have to wash their hands and wash their feet before they go in. Pretty clear concept. Is cleanliness and holiness important to God? Can yes. we go before God without being clean and holy? Yeah, what's the old saying? Cleanliness is next to godliness. No, we do need to be clean. Even though we have the ability to worship God through Jesus Christ today, through, through belief in Jesus Christ, he's still holy. And he still is someone to be honored and worshiped in a, in a special way. Of course, God looks at Jesus Christ who has paid that sin debt and also washes our sins white as snow, as it's noted in Scripture, so that we can come to God cleansed. And it's another way in which Jesus Christ is there as our intercessory and as our high priest 
to God. I keep repeating this idea that we're separated from God and we need to be atoned for, we need to be cleansed before we go into where God is. And the reason I keep repeating it is because the whole tabernacle keeps repeating it. All of the imagery is around this of how holy and pure and set apart God is and then how separated we are from God because of our sin and how dirty we are because of our sin and how difficult it is for a sinner, impossible, if you will, for a sinner to approach God without jumping through all these hoops. And then even after we do all of that, our one representative, the high priest, finally gets behind the veil and realizes we've we've still all failed. It's the picture of the tabernacle over and over just keeps repeating how we are not worthy. And this bronze laver, the basin, is one more of these messages. The priest would be dirty. Their feet would be dirty. Their hands would be dirty. And we cannot approach God with dirty hands and dirty feet. We must be washed. 1 John 1, 7 says that Jesus cleanses us from all sin, cleanses us from all sin. So one of the pictures of salvation is this cleansing, how we're polluted or dirty in need of cleansing. Jesus told Peter, remember in the upper room, he was washing their feet, right? Which is what the laver did. It it washed their feet. So Jesus in the upper room the night before he died was washing their feet. And what did Peter say? No, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. I need to be washing your feet. And Jesus replied by, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. That's in John 13, verse 8. The idea here, if, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. You can't get into where God is unless you're washed. You can't get into where God is unless you're washed. So, Steve, how do we get washed? Because we're all dirty with sin. How do we get washed? Well, it's been clear what you've just pointed out in these scripture verses, that it's through belief in Jesus Christ, that we're cleansed through him and his sacrifice that he made, and that if we're not cleansed through him, then we have no part of him. So in the tabernacle ceremony, the tabernacle objects, it speaks to all these things. Our sin must get paid for. The debt has to get paid. That gets settled at the burning bronze altar. The ugliness of the altar is when the blood is spilled and the animal is is sacrificed on the altar. Our sin is paid for when Jesus died on, on the cross. We still have to be washed. Before we can get into God, our sin is paid for and then we're washed. That's the picture of the bronze labor. We need washing to be clean. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples in the upper room and said, He who has bathed, that's the other thing he says in the upper room, He who has bathed, needs only to wash his feet. He said that in in verses 8 and verses 11. So what's the application for us? Those of us that are already believers, do we still sometimes sin? Well, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. we do, because we're still human. But it it is good that we become believers, we indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we have that desire to not sin anymore, but yet we still do. Paul pointed that out. He says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do, showing that we're all human. We all have that to where, yes, we still falter. We still sin, sin meaning missing the mark, but yet we have that continual cleansing from Jesus Christ. That's why his burden is light. 
is because we don't have that continual faltering burden on us. We have that once and for all forgiveness and belief in him. But whenever we do falter, we can confess our sins so that we can be forgiven of them. And the priests in the ceremony, again, had to make sacrifices every morning, every evening. There were people coming by during the day making special sacrifices. The, these sacrifices were going on constantly. The priests were constantly having to wash themselves. It never ended. They had to keep washing, just like they had to keep sacrificing. Well, Jesus' sacrifice paid for it. It is finished. We don't have to keep sacrificing, but we do need to wash our feet because our sin has been paid for. Our sin's been paid for, but we still walk in some filthy places sometimes. We have to wash our feet. That was the picture. That was one of the messages that Jesus was giving in the upper room when he was washing the disciples' feet. He said to them, quote, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean, Jesus said in John 13, 10. So he said, you've already had a bath, you're clean, but your feet are dirty, I'm going to wash your feet. So the picture here, at least for the Christian, our sin's been paid for. We, we, we've been clean, we had a bath. Remember in the ceremony here, the priest, but when he was consecrated, had an entire bath. We saw that a chapter or two ago. But now, before they go in before God, they have to wash their hands, wash their feet. And Jesus repeated that message. He said, he who has bathed is already clean. I just have to wash your feet. So today, Christian, Jesus is kneeling down in front of you, wanting to wash your feet. And Steve, I was at a church service one time years ago where the pastor was speaking on the upper room discourse in John 13. And he wanted to find somebody and do a feet washing ceremony on the, on the platform. And he talked the music minister into, and he did, he, the pastor wrapped a towel around him and got the bowl and the towel, took off the guy's shoes and washed his feet right there on the platform. And when they, of course, people kind of enjoyed that, but they got to talk about it afterwards. Some of the people didn't want him to do it. it it's very humbling to have somebody else wash your feet. That's the picture here. It's very humbling. Think of it to have the Lord wash your feet. But that's what he's doing is he's saying, your sin's been paid for at the altar. I just want to, this one last wash and then you'll be clean. I mean, isn't, that, isn't this a great picture of what our Lord's done for us? It is a great picture. And that story of, of Jesus and Peter protesting and Jesus's response that if I don't do this, you don't have a part of me. Peter then went further. He said, well, then don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. And we see that commitment that Peter has. It's a glorious picture to know that we can be washed and cleansed through Jesus Christ and that we can have that salvation through him and we can have that relationship with him and, and with God. Doesn't it feel good when you've been dirty to go and, and get clean? Yeah. yeah. Yes. So Christian, there's times where you and I, we've been walking a filthy path and all we need is to humble ourselves and let Christ wash our feet. So moving on to the last part of the chapter here, the last part of this chapter 30, it talks about this anointing oil. And they were supposed to make a very fine oil and they're supposed to add some fragrances to it. And they were supposed to use it to anoint all of the furniture and all of the objects 
in the tabernacle. God commanded Israel to make this special fragrant oil and anoint all the various parts of the tabernacle with it. And once these items are anointed, they're consecrated, they're sanctified, they're set apart. It was a ceremony not only to make them smell good and look good, but it was also to set them apart. Once this consecration oil, this special oil was put on it, those objects were set apart for God's use. They were set apart for God's use. They were set apart for special service. They weren't supposed to then be used for common things. They're anointed with a sweet-smelling aroma, sweet-smelling oil, so that they would be marked out for special service. There was nothing special in and of the pots and pans in themselves other than they had this, this special oil put on them, and now they were special to be used for a special purpose. So, Steve, how, how do we apply that to us? Is it possible that us as Christians can be anointed with a special oil and set aside for a special purpose? Yeah, we're, we're told that we're anointed by the Holy Spirit and that we have that indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And at that point, we are set aside. Once we become believers, we are set aside for His purpose, or we at least should know that we are set aside. I don't think some people realize that they are, but they are, and that we have now gifts that have been imparted to us that we need to use in order for the betterment of the body of Christ. And if we're just one of those people that have expressed belief in Jesus Christ and then never do anything else, I think we're missing out on a lot of things that God has for us and that what we should be doing. The lesson for us is that once we have taken it upon ourselves to join with Jesus Christ, then we are set apart. We are consecrated. We are anointed with a special oil, and we are then set apart for His purpose. And we then should not be used for common use. We should be for His purposes. That's our goal here. So that brings us to the end of Exodus chapter 29. It's probably a good spot to stop for today. Next time we're going to get into the uh, Exodus chapter 31, and we, we have some lead up here in 31 to the next big event, which is the golden calf. And that's the one where Israel crashes and burns. And it's really a great lesson for us. But we'll be with that next time as you join us here as we reason through the Bible. Thank you for watching and listening, and may God bless you.